and we all, it's funny because we can see it in other people. And I know people that are pretty extreme examples of this, but we all do that. There's something, it's just like, if I only had pretty much any time you catch yourself saying, if I only needed, if I only had X condition, then I would do Y. Like, completely bullshit. Yeah. So that, if that, if you see yourself in that pattern, I don't care what it is, not true. Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0 personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome back to the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here. What is up? Hope you are enjoying your week so far. I can't wait for you to check out today's episode with my friend Nick Egan. Now, Nick is a very interesting man because he has he has degrees in three things which really fascinate me: psychology, comparative religion, and Buddhist studies. And from that, he has developed a very unique perspective on how to transform your limitations. Now, he wrote a book about this called Shift, and his whole idea is that there are multiple different ways that humans, both consciously and subconsciously, block ourselves from achieving our own personal best because we don't know how to recognize and become aware of the areas in which we hold ourselves back. So his book is an extremely useful tool for uh, for for mastering or at least becoming aware of this area, especially for entrepreneurs. And I don't have any stake in the book. I don't have an affiliate code for you. Uh, in fact, I only recently read the book uh, a few weeks ago and I, I loved it. I thought it was great. So I invited Nick on and we have a fascinating conversation on this show about how to become aware of the things that are holding you back in life and how to take charge of those using the power of your mind. And we talk about psychology, philosophy, psychedelics, um, you know, religion, and more. And so you're really going to enjoy this episode. And while you're here, make sure that you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com. That's where we have all of the updates of this podcast. Sometimes it doesn't come out at the right time on the major platforms like Spotify and iTunes. And our place, our, our website's the only place that has all the absolute whole archive, including all the notes we can include on the major platforms. And we have updates on workshops I'm hosting, free guides, all that stuff. So check out newwaveentrepreneur.com. Add yourself to our email list so you can get these updates when the show goes live. And, uh, and that's all I got for you today. Let's jump into this episode with Nick. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start doing doing sound effects on all of our intros now. I like playing with these little soundboards. Nice, sir. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that we're both California uh, expats. Should should we create some sort of like uh, some sort of like cult around the the lost children of California? Uh, maybe it's not a bad idea. I think we'd be full, full of cult members quite quickly. <laughs> be full. All the surrounding states hate Californians for flooding everything. Yeah, I mean, just in Austin, the housing prices since I've been here under a year and a half. I mean, they've gone up twenty, thirty percent. So I could understand why. Well, we had an opportunity to we had an opportunity to move. Um, you know, in the middle of the summer in twenty twenty. When did you move? Uh, January second, um, twenty twenty one. Okay, so you got right out. Yeah, we we moved in August 2020, and I most of my friends went to Austin, and Sarah, my wife, got into University of Oregon, and I looked at Austin. I said, I think I want to start over again. I want to try something completely different. I want to switch the script up. You know, I want to. I mean, we talked, or you talk about this a lot in your book about like not being fixated in an identity or in a this is yeah. who I am in relation to who other people are, or this is what I think of myself as. And uh, I thought Oregon is something I would never have seen myself. I, I I forgot this was a state until I was considering moving here, and now I'm here, and I feel like it's it's changed my identity a little bit. Which which you talk about a lot. You talk about that. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it definitely switching up your physical surroundings is one way to really shake up what we think of as our fixed identity, our fixed self. Yep. You so so Nick Egan. 
have have we have we spoken before on IG? Because I think that we originally had been speaking on IG, and then I put up a post. I said I want really great guests on Instagram. We did, and then when you put up a post, I said, "Oh, I would love to be on." Yeah, that. and you popped into my my yeah, DMs. So that's how we first and chatted. Be careful about popping into my DMs. I do my research. I look into people. <laughs> I say, "Okay, you know what is this guy?" And so I so I got your book. I was reading through your book, and I think what really struck me first was that you have a PhD in Buddhist studies. Why the hell did you do that? <laughs> um, I like to make the lame joke that I can, so I can meditate on unemployment, right? Um, <laughs> With your artist friends. Yeah, exactly. All my artist friends, all my artists and sculptor friends. Yeah, so I started off my academic journey. I knew early on that I, was, that I wanted to study the mind. I was always interested in spirituality and meditation and energy work and all of that from a really young age. And as soon as I could drive, I was in some pretty serious meditation classes around energy, different, different traditions. And then I fell into um, Zen Buddhism in particular from the time I was 16 and started studying really seriously. And from there, I kind of migrated over to, to the Tibetan side. But in the meantime, I was going to college and at university I studied in undergrad psychology. And I was thinking that it would be along similar lines, and some elements of it were, but um, I became a little bit uh, jaded about what I perceived at the time of modern psychology, right? I thought it wasn't going deep enough. It wasn't really talking about the things that I was most interested in. There were offshoots, definitely like transpersonal psychology, humanistic, things like that, not, and now positive psychology. But at the time, that wasn't really what I was studying. And so when I went, when it came time to do master's degree, which for me, I'd always wanted, I mean, I, I love school. Like even now, I would go back for a second PhD, not to do anything with it, just because I love to learn. And so I got up to master's level and I thought, well, I'm going to change from uh, psychology to world religions and philosophy. And then from there, I kind of concentrated more on obviously like the tradition that I was most involved in, which was Buddhism. Um, and got a chance to live in a monastery for, or study in a monastery in Nepal for several months, and then end up leading tours throughout the Himalayan region, anywhere that was kind of connected with Tibetan Buddhism. So that is how, that's the story of how I got a PhD in Buddhism. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, I remember I had one friend in high school, her name was Kat Fotopoulos, and her dad was a Buddhist. Um, and we thought it was so weird. We're like, man, what the fuck, man? Like, your dad's a Buddhist? And what I thought was interesting about just having no understanding of Buddhism. I thought Buddhism and Hinduism and anything else ism was the same when I was in high school. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that it was more of a, a lifestyle than a religion. Like it's a way of thinking, a way of being. And you'd think that Christianity would also be a lifestyle too, except that most Christians don't live the lifestyle. They just do it one day a week and yeah. only for those few hours. And that's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was just talking to a friend of mine. Um, he also does a podcast and we met in a similar way. And he was talking about some level of malaise that he was having with understanding all of these beliefs. And he's very spiritual and exploring all these elements of things. And I was talking to him about um, Buddhism and, and Eastern religions in particular, and to some degree Western religions, but I feel like it's been de-emphasized for most people in the West. It's this idea of a path and the idea that, yes, there are beliefs, but those are secondary to like actual things that you can do right and so like okay you may or may not believe in reincarnation and emptiness and interconnection and all of these things but how about just sit down and do this energy practice and this you know maybe even mantras or something like that and see how you feel after seven days or 30 days of doing that every day and so i'm much more attracted to the traditions that have a path an actual set of practices that say hey you know from over the past two thousand years we found that this path works and produces these kind of mind states, right? And so you see that in Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, the yogic traditions, and you do see it in monastic Christianity, right? So like in Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox especially, but also mm -hmm. in monastic Christianity in the West. But I feel like that path element has a little bit been lost in the West. Well, I've been to the monasteries in Meteora in Greece, mm -hmm. and um, you want to talk about the perfect combination of like, uh, of, asceticism with capitalism they figured it out because they have so many people coming through the monastery and these i don't know if you've seen the pictures of it but they have you know there's these giant rock cliffs that go up yeah. seemingly into impossible heights and i don't know how these ancient monks i mean must they must have died by the hundreds or thousands getting up there no idea <laughs> and can you imagine carrying stone loads with mules up there or whatever yeah. crane i don't know how they did it and building this temple up there and then they just live up there yeah. and um it's amazing. It was interesting that, to see. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting to see. Um, they that temple actually reminds me a lot of 
Taksong, the tiger's nest in Bhutan. It's right on the edge of a cliff. Very kind of scary. And it is. It's a little scary. It's fun to go up there. Um, well, I mean, you ever think about like how I think those 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 monasteries, those cathedrals in Spain and th- those things they just spent centuries building that yeah. you can't even understand how they are still standing. You know, right, right. And meanwhile, we're stuck here with like uh, at the at best brick buildings, right? Oh, at best, you know, that crack every earthquake. Yeah, exactly. In California. In California. Uh, there's so much I want to say. Well, okay. Pulling on a thread here, you were talking about um, tradition. And you wrote an article about how martial arts and the concepts of kazushi and these yeah. other things can help you to, to understand how to deal with conflict. And, you know, this is obviously very resonant to me. I, I'm doing kazushi every day in class yeah. in jiu-jitsu. And uh, which is judo, and it's the same thing. And the idea, I, I feel like I just found this out recently. Maybe it just dawned on me that there are, or, or it just came to the awareness that dealing with problems, oftentimes the resistance causes more problems than the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's our thinking, it's our sort of aversion to the problem that itself becomes the biggest problem. Right. And, the thinking of the yeah. problem, the anticipation of the problem. Yeah. You create, you create micro problems around the problem. Right. I can't do this and this means that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole bunch of stories and then those create limitations. That's absolutely true. Man, I love, I love martial arts in the same way that I love people that have done any discipline for a long time. And I think any discipline for a long time can really give you a lot of lessons about how to live life, but especially martial arts, which is so steeped in spirituality and psychology, really, at least on in the Asian side, but also, you know, Western boxing too, Western certainly oh, yeah. um, wrestling. They've got all that. It's just, it hasn't been emphasized in the same way. But yeah, Kazushi, like staying with the problem, really just, you know, staying with the problem, feeling it out until there's that point of being able to unbalance, you know? And it takes Yeah, can you bit. define Kazushi for us for someone who doesn't speak yeah, Japanese? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be defined in different ways but basically it's like an off balancing a gentle so like in mm-hmm. the chinese arts they talk about like the minute that you touch you're kind of off balance. you're feeling the center of the person and off balancing so like in a jiu-jitsu context it's like feeling the person and kind of it could be termed yeah. as like doing what's unexpected but it's also feeling them and, and pushing off balance so there's two things working yeah. one is your percept your proprioceptive input your sensitivity and then on top of it your skill being able to adjust that person and so, yeah, Kazushi, being able to stay with the problem, stick with the problem, don't look away from it, don't project onto it, just stay with exactly what is, and possibility opens up. I don't know, I can't even, it was so long ago since I wrote the book, I can't remember what I've included and what I <laughs> didn't put in there and didn't put in there, but I, if I did put it in there, maybe it's familiar to you, but there's a great quote by a race car driver, and he says, a lot of people that crash stop driving, they take their hands off the wheel the last yep. millisecond, and he said, you can drive out of many crashes if you just stay present to what's actually happening. And so that's kind of like what Kazushi can be. Well, it's interesting. Um, Hiran Gracie, one of my friends asked Hiran, he said, Hiran, what do you, what's jujitsu to you? What does it mean? And he said, to me, it means constant awareness of your opponent, constant, constant presence and awareness. And I, I think that we don't realize how truly difficult it is to be fully present to a moment. We dip in and out of our moments a lot. Like I'm thinking this and then this thing, this and then this, and then they're coming back to it, coming this thing, and then coming back to it. And what's great about, um, I'm not going to go into the whole jujitsu thing because people are like, stop fucking talking about this. <laughs> but what's great about jujitsu is you feel this, you feel the contact with someone else and you can feel those micro movements and you realize that your whole body is the organism. It's not just my hand touches their hand. It's my whole body, their whole body. And then you you become your your entire, the entirety of your of your perception and your sensation. You can feel all of it. And it just makes you totally present in a way that in the rest of your life, it's very hard to be. So it's flow. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Well, right. The flow state will come from that because there's a level of challenge and a level of expertise that sets up that. And so people get into that flow state at once after the kind of the initial frustration beginner state. And it is uncomfortable. It's hard to be in flow when you suck. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hard to be in flow when you suck or when it's too easy, right? Those are the two. Right, right. But I do want to say, yeah, that mindfulness of the present moment and understanding your own body, it is, that is kind of the, the invitation from mindfulness yeah. practice or any, anything is to be more present in your life, be fully present to you and everything around you. And you, you mentioned it there just briefly, you know, when you're in contact with an opponent, it's not just you, you, you can't just be aware of you and your own breathing. You do, that is a part of it, but you have to also be aware of them and not just like the point of contact. The point of contact leads down to their center of gravity, their center of mass, right? And then that's mm-hmm. how you can maneuver these things. And that's how these 
people that are very masterful within any martial art seem to be doing magic effortlessly because they're able to then feel the other person. And so you have to let go of the um, natural natural tendency to to wall yourself off because that person now, once they're in your, your area, they're now a part of the organism as well. And so the same yeah. thing, if you're thinking about life, everything in your life is an element of your organismness, right? And so then mm-hmm. it's like, how, do, how am I feeling that? How am I relating to everything from that capacity? Yeah, you made it. Okay. So this is a quote I'll pull from the book. Cause I screenshot this. Uh, this isn't your quote, but someone else said, and I think it describes what you're saying. As we begin to rest and pay attention, we begin to see everything clearly. We see that the self has no basis or solidity. It is a complete mental fabrication. We also realize that everything we believe to be true about our life is nothing but stories fabricated around false identifications. That was Anam Thurban. Yeah, one of my one of my teachers. Um, he's alive. He's teaching in the East Bay. Everybody check him out. Anam Tupton. Can't remember what his website is. Oh, it's Dharmata, D H A R M A T A dot org. He's fantastic. And. But there's nothing there. When you go to look for it, there's nothing there. Yeah. The closer you look, it's just more of the same stuff, but it's not, there's nothing solid to put your finger on. I've been talking about this. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just, it, no, just, buzzed, it. it just freaks me out. It just charges me up. It's like, okay, can I read something to you? Please, because you're, uh, this is exactly this, what I want to talk about. <laughs> yes, because this describes my thoughts on, okay, here it is. So, the concept that he described, how we are not actually there, how there's nothing actually physical there, how there's it's all it's all a gradient is the way I think of it. That's exactly um, yeah. yeah. And I call this the gradient of now. So the world moves in a continuous gradient that humans have to break into discrete units in order to measure. There are no specific colors. Because there are no specific points in time or space. And there are no specific people. Because there are no specific points in time or space. We use minutes to break down the endless flow of time into neat little building blocks so that our brains can decipher them. But time's true form is shaped more like a psychic Mobius strip than a continuous line from past to the future. So if you think about a, a Mobius strip, and anyone who's listening, a Mobius strip is an infinity sign in 3D that connects to, it, to itself, similar to what an... Um, an Ouroboros, which is the snake, the infinity snake that goes, that eats itself. So it's it's a psychic Mobius strip, okay? Meaning it's in your mind and it's continuous with no past or with, with no beginning or end point. The past and the future are interwoven and in a constant relationship to each other, creating one infinite edge that folds back onto itself. For an event to have happened in the past, it would have, ha- it would have needed to occur at a discrete time. But the more you examine time, the more it slips through your fingers like sand. St. Augustine said, I know what time is, but when you ask me, I don't. Every moment only exists in relation to other moments. We use personal and collective history to create mental hooks that compress the vast calculus of time into a manageable file. If we didn't have reference points for history, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to compress all the information of an event into our mind because we need those things to to determine if we're close or far away from that time and where we are in that narrative line. So my question is, is a child born the moment she leaves the birth canal and is breathing oxygen on the other side of the womb? Or is she born, born when the sperm fertilizes the egg? Or is she born when the cells of the egg are created? When the cells are created, are, of the egg are created, the mom is being born. So where does it actually start? Maybe she's born at the exact moment that her father and mother are born because without those events, her existence would be impossible. Or was she born when the first single-celled organism finally became multicellular and its ancestor called out of the sea? See, so we're having a hard time, again, pinpointing when is a time? When, it, when is an exact time? The more closely you look at time, the more you notice there's nothing to see. There are no boundaries around when events start and stop. There are no discrete units to measure a moment, only a continuous flow and causation of itself. There's only now and now and now. And the more you look at matter, the more you realize it's not solid. The body we experience as hard and dense is actually more air than land. We're completely porous on a microscopic level, constituted of trillions of cells surrounded by constellations of empty space. Inside each nucleus, even more particles vibrating with cellular energy, and you extend to infinity in both directions. There is no difference between you and the room you're in. 
Your cells create a field of electrical energy which touches and interacts with everything around you, including other people. There's no separation between anything or anybody. There's only the gradient of infinite change from one moment to the next. Last night, I watched the sky flex and bloom in the mountains of Santa Monica. The sun pulsed an infinite bouquet of flowers for two hours as it set over the valley, every instant a different color, deep crimson to brilliant blue and green. Every shade, every moment, a barely perceptible variation of the one just a second before. I wonder if our lives are much like the pulsing colors over that night sky. Every moment, no separation, only a gradient of experiences. Only now and now and now. That's amazing. That's amazing. What strikes me is using slightly different language. You are exactly talking about in the Buddhist tradition, what's talked about as emptiness or interdependence, right? And so it's like the momentariness of being and the lack of any kind of (laughs) self-identified entity within whatever it is that we think, no non-essentialization. So as you're talking, I mean, literally, man, you're, you could be quoting, here's the Heart Sutra, right? The Heart Sutra is like the, one of the fundamental texts. It's two pages long. It's two pages long. The Buddha. I've never read that before. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Like, why would anybody read it? Yeah. Right? So, you know, unless you're like, within I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to though. But listen to this. Yeah, you're going to, you definitely should. So they're talking about the five aggregates, which are the five ways that we, that Buddhists identify what makes up the self, right? So like form, feeling, all all of those elements that we think of, like, that's me. And then here's an exact quote. You should see clearly that the five aggregates are also empty of any inherent nature. Form is empty. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not other than form and form is not other than emptiness. Feelings, discriminations, compositional factors, and consciousness are also emptiness. Likewise, all phenomena are empty. They have no defining characteristics. They are birthless. They do not cease. They are unstained. They are separate from stains. They do not die and they are not born. So exactly everything that you talked about is exactly right. And it's really important when we're talking about this, that would be considered like the via negativa, right? So like describing things as not having an essential nature, it doesn't mean that there's nothing. There's still, and you talked no. about it in the end of, of that piece where there's like this arising of, of experience and of phenomena. So it's completely possible. It's not like everything goes away. It's not like that at all. It's not like, oh, I'm going to rest in the state of total blackness. It's like, actually, everything exists without me having to cling on to those things. And by the way, there's a total kind of clarity in terms of the limitlessness of everything. And so it's very similar. It's funny because I'm glad you brought this up. You had a guest on previously. Um, doesn't matter who, but he was talking about like non, non-duality as like you go and merge into this separate non-duality. And that's fine. Like that's not outside of the realm of many traditions. And, and I believe you can do that like with the divine, but that's actually still dual. So if you think of like dual meaning two, if you think of like, well, I'm going to go, I'm, an, I'm non-dual right now and I'm going to go merge with this God thing and I'm going to merge with that and then become non-dual, there's still like this non, there's still the duality piece over here, which in and of itself is duality. Right, and right. so this, the realization that you're talking about is like, actually, if I deeply let go of my, of my grasping at everything, myself and a phenomenon, the outside world, there can arise this like blissful clarity that actually is the true nature of who we are. Hmm. Well, one thing is the absence of something is still something. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at a tree, for instance, every place when, when a tree with the branches of a tree, every place where the branches are not is still part of that tree's overall energy field. So the negative impression of the tree, if you were to take a negative, a superimpose a negative picture of it, where it's just the air that the tree doesn't touch, that's still in my perspective, from my perspective, an imprint of the tree. Because the tree had to, from energy, grow into a shape that created that signature of yeah. distribution. Absolutely. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And your, your point about like, where does the embryo also begin? It's like, well, is the tree, you can follow that line of logic. That bugs me way. out, man. Well, you can say like, look at, in a, a classic example is actually a seed or a seedling. So like an acorn, is an acorn an oak tree or not? And then like, is an acorn sprouting an oak tree? At what point do you say it's not? And then by the way, if it is the acorn, then is the acorn also part of that previous tree? 
And then where do you see the whole point of what you're getting at is like any any line that you draw is artificial, including within ourselves. And there is actually so what we're talking about is the philosophical way to think about that. And it's cool and fun and and necessary. But there is a way to actually experience this personally by just sitting down and deeply letting go of thoughts, deeply letting go and allowing them to just arise, not shutting them down, not paying attention to breathing, none of that stuff, deeply letting go. And then you get to this point of total clarity. This must be useful for entrepreneurs. I'm just I'm just softballing you <laughs> this one. Yeah, this so, must be useful to help entrepreneurs <laughs> calm down. What do you think? Yeah, it is. So it, it's funny because in my work, yeah, I work. With, I coach entrepreneurs um, often, sometimes executives, and elements of it are useful because all you have to do is shake up people's notion of really tight clinging to what they think of as true, and then right. and they get a ton of value out of it. What you're talking about is like the full Monty spiritual realization of it. And I'm like, well, yeah. I could just give you like a dose of it and it's going to be super helpful for you and your business and your stress. Just right? dissolve. Just realize that you're, dis- <laughs> yeah. that you're not even here and it doesn't matter. Totally. Exactly. So we don't usually go quite that far. Some people we do. Um, just depends. <laughs> but just a little bit is helpful for business. Like what you think of as a problem is not a problem. It's just not. Someone said something interesting recently. That they said that you are a response to a universal calling or a universal need. I liked that perspective that, you know, not even from a creationist perspective, but more of just, again, us being the obvious imprint of some universal, you know, some universal hologram of itself, you know, some, some piece of the cosmos looking at itself, observing itself. You know, we are all, a lot of things too. I think we view this separation as false separation we see ourselves as separate from the world, but we grew from the world. We literally, I mean, we're the same as the tree. We just don't have roots in the same way, but our roots are energetic. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we just have, a, we have a communication system that's different. It's more, it's more audible. Um, but we're not, we have this thing like we're the exception. No, we're part of it. And we are just barely close to recognizing and acknowledging that we're, that we're, uh, that we're here, but we're still not even 100% conscious. Otherwise, we'd realize that. We'd realize that we were part of all of Earth, you know, yeah. which is, it doesn't make sense for me to why people would destroy the Earth or why they would, you know, wouldn't take the environment as a, as a personal, uh, you know, protective. Right. Because right. we're, we're living on it. We are it. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of one of my professors in grad school used to say, he's a Buddhist, and he would say that we are nothing more and nothing less than the cresting wave of the totality of existence. Meaning like, mm-hmm. we're, yeah, we're just a cresting wave. We're here. We think that we're separate, but actually you're just the, that little crest and you're moving constantly. And it's never, it's never been, nor will it's it ever ready. be separate from the infinite. Yeah, it's never. Yeah. And, and I mean, in waves, even if you look at uh, like Fibonacci sequences, vibrations, wave patterns, um, we're in a, we're in this constant dance. We're going to go back into the same thing that we came from. If you even think about Alan Watts has this wonderful visualization of just thinking about the idea we're, uh, of we're trying to visualize life after death, but we've never considered the fact that there was life before birth. And right. if life before birth was completely devoid of any, you know, material need or uh, fear, angst, expression of human desire, then that's probably what's on the other side. Yep, <laughs> it's the exactly. same. And, it's, and that the death is just the interval between births. It's not the death of anything except an interval between conscious awarenesses. Yep, exactly. And I like to think about too, so that's very, that's a very Zen, Alan Watts was really into Zen and there's a whole Zen really into Zen. kind of yeah. thinking around like, what was your original face before you were born? Um, that's one of the koans yeah. in Zen. And the Tibetan notion of like, well, you die, there's the bardo, which is like the experience in between births. And then on the other side is some kind of other existence. And they talk about it as reincarnation, but it actually could be like an energetic form as like a heaven or whatever. There's all... It's much broader than what people think of. Um, But the question is, like, if you think that there's some kind of infinite on the other side of death or through the death experience, the invitation then is how do you access that now? Because there's not really any difference between that and now. So why can you? And this is something that I'll use with entrepreneurs, too. It's like, well, look, think about the most. In fact, I was just using this with a client. Think about the most beautiful thing you've ever experienced, like uh, a beautiful sunset or something like that. And get that feeling, close your eyes and imagine that feeling. 
and you're not, and if you're closing your eyes, you're not actually seeing that in the moment, right? So where is that feeling coming from? It's coming from within you. And then so what I'll have them do is take something ugly. Usually it's like a crumpled up piece of paper and see if you can stare at that ugly thing and elicit that same feeling of beauty and realize that the feeling of beauty is coming from within you. The gratitude, is, it's always in you, but we're always out looking for the thing to, to give us that. And it's total bullshit because it's always within us. That you, you, you just tied this in perfectly because that's what I want to ask you. You said you know, in the book, and we'll talk, maybe, maybe we'll just kind of go through the, the concepts of the, in, that are in the book. It's really good. I liked what I read. But you said during lunch with Roshi, who oh, yeah. you know, was, your, was your mentor, I asked him about this uh, contradiction, this contradiction that you were expressing between when you transition to whatever that is, coming back and being part of this whole, this whole dance again to be part of service and, and help humanity, or do you just become enlightened and go away and just evolve past it all? You were working through this this conundrum for yourself and you wanted to know wh where is nirvana and what did he say yeah well first thank you that's it's funny because that portion of the book i almost took it out many times and it was only at the assistance of the editor and some other people they were like no that's no good, put that in a good, it's a good thing good story it telling. felt a little bit too like personal yeah. maybe um so no, anyway good. good storytelling yeah thank you so the story is I think I was 18 and I've been studying Zen for a couple of years. And I, of course, like I like scholarship. So I like reading. I like philosophy, all of that and the practice element. And so I'd come across this idea of a bodhisattva, which is somebody it, most people understand it as like a being that has some kind of enlightenment that commits to coming back to help the world over and over again, infinite lifetimes, all of that. And then there's also the familiar concept of enlightenment, which at the time I had conceptualized as like outside of this world. And I was thinking like, well, it's a place that you go and I rest in kind of like what I was saying, your previous guest was saying, connect with the non-dual in a place separate from here, not in this body. And so I was asking him, I said, well, when you, when you die, I was asking him specifically him, like you Roshi, and Roshi means abbot, right? It was Japanese. It's like basically saying master, like when you master die, this very austere Zen practitioner, amazing presence, um, Kuang Roshi. And he, I said, when you die, are you going to come back or are you going to go to Nirvana, you know, to, to essential peace to eternal peace. And I'll never forget it. He turned and he looked at me in this incredibly profound way. And he has a very deep voice. And he just said, this is the pure land. And he said it in a way that I, it literally, I was speech. I could not talk at the time. It rocked me to the core and it made it clear that he wasn't just talking theoretical. He actually meant it and he actually experienced it. And it completely dissolved my duality of what I was trying to do and what this world actually was. And I won't say it wasn't like this moment of kind of in Japanese, like a Kensho enlightenment type of moment, but it definitely was a loosening of the bounds that I had created that were so tight around conceptuality. Yeah. Well, he, he gave you a, he gave you a slight psychedelic insight, mm -hmm. you know, you can get those, you can get oh, those yeah. completely sober where it just unlocks. And those, I think those with the, what's good about those, uh, the Japanese cones if you just contemplate them for a long time, sometimes something clicks where you get an unspeakable knowledge. It's something that you can't always formulate into words, but something clicks and makes sense because of the way that they word the riddle. It's kind of like the Mobius strip. You start to get the joke. That's exactly you start to understand. It. That's exactly it. The <laughs> koans are designed, and really all practice, it's designed to kind of short circuit your normal thinking. And even everything which you just read. Mm -hmm. If you really take that into, into consideration deep inside of you, it will short circuit your way of thinking. Or if you think about like that oak tree or the baby going back, it's like burp, all of a sudden it short circuits everything. And then you have, if you're paying attention and if you can be open to it, you have this moment of clarity. And that is the nature of mind itself. I wrote, I wrote that, uh, that piece after a night of amazing mushrooms mm -hmm. and I wrote it the next morning. And it just came in so thick where I was like, oh, this is what it is. And I just wrote it all out. And I said, wow, that just proves that when your brain's allowed to fire and rewire in different new patterns, you see the world and perceive it in different ways. And then you can still look back on that in your, in your normal state and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not the, the insights and the feelings from any good, any good trip, quote unquote, any experience with any kind of healing modality, in meditation included, 
greatly mm-hmm. depends on your mindset, your set, and the setting that you're in, and then the practice that you do, right? And so mushrooms are the same as like even going to a Zen temple. You can have crappy motivation and have kind of crappy experience and come out with nothing, or you can have great motivation and come out with like gifts that'll last you a lifetime. Same, same with mushrooms. You know, I've I started to do too. I don't know if this is something that uh, that is taught in you know to traditionally studying uh, meditation or Zen, but I started practice now. When I start to feel bored, I think the temptation is just to scroll or do whatever is immediately available: snack, eat, move, fart, whatever. I'm <laughs> when I when I start to feel bored, even for a second, I'll say, "Okay, I'm gonna take a second and meditate." And I'll do that often throughout the day now, and I find that it it really helps calm the monkey mind. Yeah, because I, you know, I have my dedicated times of doing my morning meditation, but even during sure. the day, I'll find myself wanting to, you know, skitter around to do things. Yeah, to getting fill, bored to fill the wanting to, to fill do, the void, know, fill the to, void of something. Yeah, yeah, fill the yeah void. that's it's exactly it. You, if you can seize the moment and realize, understand your state of like trying to seek out some kind of stimulation, and then you simply just let the mind go let go of thoughts and just be present to whatever is there, then there will never be, you'll never be bored, right? You'll never really be bored. You can always experience it. And if you do that deep enough, if you keep keep letting go, letting go, letting go, even in just a split second, you'll experience um, a kind of arising, things will take on a less solid quality, even in that moment, right? So, so morning meditation, depending on what kind of meditation you do, right? We're, talk, we're talking at a very deep level of somebody able to let go we're not talking about just like I pay attention to my breathing and then kind of notice when I'm distracted and then come back. It's actually like a deep form of letting go. And so if you're able to do that just momentary, momentary, momentary throughout the day, I mean, that's you're you're very close to kind of stabilizing that. Yeah, it's like a it's like a momentary, uh, a momentary um, antidepressant, too, you know? Yeah, it just it's, it gets you that nice hit of it's it's I'm a fan of the 30 minute nap. Don't get me wrong, but. Sometimes it's nice to just take a beat, especially when you when you consider, at least for me, how much content I'm constantly looking at. I don't know about you, but man, I'm always like, you know, I, I do my best to stay off social, but I'm also creating a lot of content, so I'm on it. And uh, I'm constantly looking at screens, watching stuff. I think it's good to like use it as a, a periodic throughout the day, a refresh, like just to, just a, uh, wiping the slate clean. It's like cleaning your counter in the kitchen or something because yeah. there's so much mental garbage that goes on your the workroom floor in your mind I think it's good. It just is good. A couple times throughout the day, just pause. Yeah, it is really good to have that kind of clarity. And it does do that. It does kind of clear out things and allow you to not grasp onto things. I mean, the ideal, and I'm not there yet, but to have a mind where it doesn't matter what garbage you put on it, it slides right off, right? And then yeah, there's well, like, then you don't yeah. have to, there's no taking a break because the garbage just, it, it can't, there's nothing to grab on. black belt mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I like to ask myself throughout the day, I'll, just to keep myself focused, you know, I'll say, okay, why am I doing this again? What's the, what's the main purpose here? What's the intent? Just throughout the day, just checking in, just because sometimes I'll find that I start with a primary task, which is part of the bigger mission, but then I'll get taken off on a side mission where it's like, oh, this thing comes up or this interesting piece of content pops up or this right. uh, other concern which really can wait or this text that you know I'm feeling emotional I want to respond to somebody and so I'm like going off on that thing when really it's like okay wait what am I doing here you know I have an hour to get this thing done even today I was like okay you know I have two shows I'm doing today what am I doing okay I need to prepare for these show notes I need to look through guest stuff I need to read so I need to like you know and so like really focusing on what that time is because it's so easy to spend 20 30 40 minutes at a time just fitting in a way because there's so many places to spend your attention now yeah and unfortunately you can spend your whole life doing that right it's possible to be completely distracted mm-hmm. from your life and to miss the essential point right and in everybody and this comes to from like a, a more of a coaching mentality which is like what are the core what are your core values your core values the thing that lights you up the most and how are you optimizing for that and how can you bring that in into your daily life right like don't yeah. don't wait with a lot of my clients it's like well what what happens if you are making a million bucks a year and you don't have to work right and without doing anything passive total passive income what would you do oh well i would do a b and c okay well how much of a b and c do you do right now when you're having to work how like zero zero yeah zero it's like okay <laughs> so if you're telling me like adventure and your relationships and your and all of these things are are really important to you let's actually bring that in right now because guess what that's going to help you be successful in the future 
Yeah, we we often uh, we have to tell ourselves lies too about what we would do if we just had X Y Z. Right. You know, um, oh, if I just had more time, I could pay attention to my relationship. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. That's not it, sir. That's not it. You know, if I just had t- if I just had time, I or if I just had more money, I could do more creative things. No, you can do creative things now. Exactly. You know, exactly. So, and we all, it's funny because we can see it in other people. And I know people that are pretty extreme examples of this, but we all do that. There's something, it's just like, if I only had pretty much any time you catch yourself saying, if I only needed, if I only had X condition, then I would do Y completely bullshit. Yeah. So that, if that, if you see yourself in that pattern, I don't care what it is. Not true. Yeah. And maybe there's like, um, what is it called? Like a, a heuristic for if my brain says that, then I dump it. Yeah. You know, exactly. If I catch my brain, if I catch my internal monologue saying, if I only had blank, I'd do blank. Yeah. Flag, red alert. Yeah. Exactly. No, I think that's, yeah, it's interesting. Wise. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, isn't that similar to the overall concept of your book, Shift? Yes, it is. The overall concept of my book was just. I wanted to, I started off writing like Buddhist type books and it never got anywhere. I can't, I ran into this block and I was like, you know, it doesn't, I'm not actually writing a Buddhist book. I'm using some elements of like Buddhism and some elements of martial arts to be able to talk about how you can loosen up your stories. And just like what you were saying, like we don't, I don't even really go to the depths of, it's a little bit, we touch on a little bit of spirituality and the non-dual nature and, and all of that. But it's just like going in that direction to kind of loosen up the tightness. Cause what I found in my work so often, we just constantly believe, we don't even think of them as our stories. It's not like I believe my story. No. It's like this thing is true with a capital T this is and I'll be damned if truth. you would tell me otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that. that uh, very I will room. fight to res- preserve this limitation. Com- exactly right. I will fight to preserve <laughs> my own limitation and tell you all the reasons yes. why that is not true. And then we can, if we can oh, shake yeah. that up just a little bit, if the door can crack open a tiny bit, we can crack it open the whole way. How many people do you know have gotten mad when you challenged their own limiting belief? <laughs> um, I used to not be that good at pulling punches, you know, because of my background within philosophy. Like you get you get pretty good at philosophizing, right? Which is doing exactly that. Like I can undo people's beliefs pretty easily from like a philosophical perspective. But from a coaching perspective, what it's taught me is do less of that and do more of just like powerful questions that are more like an invitation. And so what's interesting to me is where people used to get pissed off when I would do this philosophically, they now are incredibly grateful when you do it from more of a coaching mentality. And it's like, yeah, so it really is. It's not me. It's the, it's the coaching methodology in general that is that many, many people practice. And so that's, that's some of the beauty of it. Yeah. I mean, I I think really it comes down to in a, in a, in a coaching context people are people are agreeing to be coached sometimes you'll have a friend or a family member and they'll be saying this 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 and you're like no 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 this is what is holding you back and they say fuck you yeah and you're like (laughs) well that's i mean i'm trying to help you with your diabetes ma'am yeah exactly well that's the other i mean you can't you can't coach without consent right so it's like a coactive yeah a coactive process and i've learned not to you know even if it's really clear you know we can do some stuff and we can do it pretty quickly you don't do it without (laughs) without permission so yeah you can't coach your grandma trust me yeah you cannot (laughs) she's a wild bull yeah exactly she will buck you right off let her go shit about your coaching yep exactly uh okay so i guess do do you want to like let's talk specifically about the book itself because you have seven different strategies for making shifts um, what do you think would be the most useful takeaways for someone who, you know, who isn't familiar with the work, but wants to get a general understanding of your process? Yeah, it really, so much of it can depend on the individual, right? Like some people, like for instance, you would be able to take something that I would say would be a little bit more extreme and I would have you try on a really radical notion of like, look, if I'm, if I'm presented with this problem, how can I see this from the exact polar opposite? Like, let's go into this really big problem and kind of flip it around from that perspective. Other people, they're less willing to kind of take it hook, line and sinker. So then it's just, it's moving the needle a little bit, right? So it can be as simple as things like, well, this really big story that I'm telling myself about how I'm the victim and how everything was bad and how my life is horrible. How can I find one small positive in that? 
just one tiny little bit. And then what would be interesting about like expanding out that positive or what is, so like, I'll give you an example too, on the business side of things. Sometimes I'll hear from business owners like, oh, I don't have, you know, my competition has, they have big budget and I have small budget. I'm small. I can't go after them. It's like, oh, and they tell me this story. Like it's a long conversation, a good 30 minute conversation about how bad that is. And then it's a really simple kind of, excuse me, jujitsu move. When you just say, well, how could that actually be a strength? Like, where does your smallness, your nimbleness, your ability to be intimate, your ability to deliver a real hands-on experience, how can you outmaneuver your competition and really create a thriving business model based on that, right? And so then it's like, well, okay, I'm willing to do that. But they they had to go through the, the discussion of why it's so bad first before you get to that point. So it really just depends on the individual. I would suggest... Um, Question all assumptions. Question every assumption that you have if you're thinking whether it's about your business or your life and just say like, is that really true all the time? And the answer is almost always no, right? If you ask yourself like, is that true all the time? No, it probably isn't true all the time. And then, well, how do I want to, how do I want to make that less true or more true for me in the moment? And realize that you yourself have the power to do that. And that's incredibly empowering. For some people, it's quite scary. But it's the people that I work with, I hope that it becomes this empowering thing where they have the power to create the experience of their life. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, to me, what stood out was the idea of that story. I, I am constantly trying to review my own story. And I shouldn't say trying, I constantly am reviewing my own story. What am I telling myself? Why am I telling myself this? Where did I get this story? Whose story is this? Um, you said the most dangerous story we tell ourselves is that I can't do blank story. The minute you say, I can't, it becomes true. You can't send salespeople to all the sites they need to go because you're understaffed. You can't bring on investors because your operation is immature. You can't break into a new market because you don't have enough confidence in your team. Thinking that way tucks you into a corner, believing you have no options, even though the options are out there waiting to be discovered. Stories are not inherently bad, but every story stops working one day. What we'll tell ourselves about a situation, a challenge, or an organization is, is inherently limited. A specific story may help you get to a certain point within an organization, but eventually the challenges change. If you don't change with them, you're going to get into a plat you're going to get to a plateau and be unable to go beyond it. If the organization keeps evolving without you, you'll eventually be ejected from the conversation. This is an interesting um, piece of the material, and you have several examples of like an educator, different uh, business people who have gone through these challenges. I like that idea of not only being aware of your story, but being willing to change it as the situation changes. Um, I can relate to this in in my own ways too, because when you change your story, you change your identity. And if your identity is stuck and frozen, you'll never be able to do the things that the version of you you want to become would be able to do. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's so funny because that that quote, it dovetails really nicely with the example that I was giving earlier. So it's like you and I have a client right now, not right now, in the past like few months, and she was struggling with this. She came up as in her business was quite small. It was just her. And then when I started working with her, maybe one other person, and then we've grown the business a lot. And she, the CEO, had been doing sales, elements of sales. So let's just say it was like a coaching business. It wasn't, but it let's pretend it works. So she was doing the coaching. She was actually selling her own programs, right? And then she, mm -hmm. through our work together, she got bigger and bigger and bigger, brought on more people. And then she still was not able to let go of the sales component. Why? Because the story that she was telling herself was, what people are buying is me and I can't outsource my sales component of that. So it was like, in the beginning, I had to tweak it and like, well, you don't have a bunch of budget, but what you do have is intimacy. And so that created a level of growth. And then to get, then it was like you run up into the exact opposite, which is like now the business has grown. You're much bigger. And now you do need to bring in somebody that can do sales for you, right? And then it's like you have to, it's a complete 180 because if you'd done that earlier, you were stuck in wallowing self-pity. But if you had, if you stick to that story, you're always going to stay low. You're always going to stay at that little bit. So it's like constant evolution, constant yeah. re-examining. Stories are useful in the moment for specific reasons. So you cannot fall in love with like, this is the one true story. Are you a Seinfeld fan? I am, yeah. Or was back in the day. There's a great episode. Um, yeah, I mean, I watch it. I, I still I watch it more now than I ever did. I mean, yeah. you know. But uh, there's a great episode where George decides that he's going to do the opposite of whatever he originally thinks he should do because he's, he makes such poor decisions yep. that he decides, okay, I'm just going to do the opposite of whatever my initial instinct is and he starts winning. He's changing his story. 
You know? Totally. Yep, exactly. It's changing the story. That's exactly right. So I, I think it's worth it. Uh, okay. Nick Egan, you're a badass. Oh, Where you. can we find more? Where can we find more about your work? You can you can check out my book on Amazon, Shift the Art of Transforming. I recommend it. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Can I also just say too that I, I read it before the the call and I am picky because there's a lot of there's just a lot of stuff to read and a lot of it's trash. And um, I'm, I'm picky on the aesthetics. I'm picky on the, and I'm very picky on the content. And it's it's quite good. Thank you. So I just wanted to say. I really appreciate that. It definitely, for better or worse, it's in my tone. <laughs> so if my tone in this yes. conversation has annoyed the hell out of you, do not get the book. If you like it, then you, yes. you may like the book. Um, you can check I found out a lot of pieces resonating with me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can go to nickeganphd.com if you're interested in working with me, especially entrepreneurs love working with you, executives too. Um, and you can check out my Instagram, uh, Nick underscore Egan underscore coaching underscore. I am on there. It's, I'm not super active on that particular account. Find me on LinkedIn. I'm much more active on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find I'll me. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. And that would be great. And reach out. And I PhDs are active on LinkedIn, yes. my friends. Okay, <laughs> we don't interact in the cesspool that is Instagram. We only interact in the the prestigious. Exactly, it's more static for channels. us old old people. We can like deal no, with yeah. more. That's the reality of it. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, all right, guys. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I loved recording it for you. As I told you, it was a fantastic conversation with Nick, just diving into what makes our mind such a brilliant, beautiful, and sometimes scary place. And really, you know, I wrote in my in my own journal today, basically I'm paraphrasing myself, but every obstacle I've ever had in my own life has been created in my own mind. And um, I was reading something interesting by Richard Feynman the other day, and he said something to the effect of, the human mind uh, maintains within it the key to both heaven and hell, and the same key opens both doors. And I thought that was so interesting and so relevant and timely for today's episode. So I hope that you enjoyed it. Make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com for all the updates on the show and more. Make sure you subscribe to leave a comment and, uh, and a review and a rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And that's it for today, guys. The water is warm. The tide is rising. So jump on in. Let's get ready to surf this new wave. Daniel, out.